appreciative. This is a normal sort of thing. I'm, I love a little bit of interaction here and there. Good to know people aren't yet asleep. Um, and even though it's that tired... Funny, isn't it? Every, every part of the year we seem to say it's a tired part of the year. Even in January, it's a tired part of the year. Maybe I'm just tired. Um, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 2 because it's about a special thing about uh, the presentation of Jesus to the Magi. You'll find a little outline of where I'll be going on the back of the piece of paper that you receive and it'd be great for you to have Matthew chapter 2 open in front of you. If there's anything outside of Matthew chapter 2 that I refer to, it'll come up on the screen behind me and there'll be various images and stuff that might help uh, you understand what's going on or interact in a different way. If you have any questions or anything like that, we'd love to hear them. There's a QR code. It will come up at the end. It's also down the bottom where you can ask questions and I'd be very happy to answer them through the week. I don't know what you expect when you come to, to church. You know, you expect to come into a cold building or a hot building or a big building or a stone building or the church that I spent most of my adult life in had these huge blocks of stand, sandstone on the wall and that as if you sat too close to them would drop sand all over you and you'd have to brush yourself off when you left and all of that sort of stuff. Needed a lot of work. It was a lovely place. Had a great organ. But what, when I went to church, that's one thing I expected. You know, that sort of grandeur. I mean, have you ever been in a house, suburban place, house, that's got a roof that high without about five different floors in the middle? I mean, there's something about it, isn't there? What do you expect when you walk into church? Well, I hope one of the things that you would expect is actually you'd expect to meet God. Because that's what we do when we open his word. He speaks to us, he comes to us, he meets us. Let's say over the next 20 minutes, 25 minutes or so, God appeared here. I mean, appeared here amongst us. What would you expect to see? How would you expect to react? Would it be something like this? You know, the old Michelangelo and Sistine Chapel and God reaching down to humanity and touching humanity and giving life? Or perhaps, in your mind, it's a little bit more like this, which is a relatively old movie now with Morgan Freeman called Evan Almighty, where God, Morgan Freeman, gives the powers of God to Evan for a small amount of time and shows him how hard it is to be God. But what would it be like if God actually was here? How do you think you would react? What would you expect from God? Or how would you relate to God? Well, in our passage today, in Matthew chapter 2, it brings a number of people to meet Jesus, who, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, as we looked at the Christmas story, is God with us, is Emmanuel. And we see how they react to them and how they respond. But the question that's there for all of us is how would we respond? So let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. I hope you've got it open in front of you. The first people that he comes across are the Magi. Now, if you look at the screen right now, there's a picture. I'd love to have the, the time and, and interactivity to be able to tell, ask you what's wrong with this picture. Because there's a number of things wrong with this picture. But it's the picture most of us have in our mind of this event. We think there's three kings coming on camels and they come and meet Jesus, right? Well, let me, sorry, point out to you that there's no mention of how many there are. 
There are no, they're not called kings anywhere in the Bible and neither are there any camels mentioned. So sort of the fundamental things about the picture just aren't right. They're actually not kings, they're magi. That, there's a strange word, it's the basis of our word magician, but it's not really, we think of magicians doing conjuring tricks and stuff like that. No, they were sort of occult priests. They were Zoroastrian. Now, I want, here, here is a moment for real interactivity. Who knows a famous Zoroastrian? I'll come to you in a minute, Lee. I'm sure you do know. Okay, Lee. Oh, no, she's forgotten. Freddie Mercury, that's right. Freddie Mercury from Queen was a Zoroastrian. He was actually a, an Indian Persian. He came from that part of the world. He, and they're over in the east. If you're standing in Israel, they are over in the east and from a place called Media. Now, we came across Media when we looked at Daniel a year or so ago at church and what happened there with the Medes and the Persians and they were taken off into exile and Daniel joined up with the magicians or put, was made the head of the magicians, which is probably what we're talking about now, the Magi of the time. But it's really crucial to understand something here. Two weeks ago, we heard about the birth of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is about, isn't it? If Christmas doesn't get that across to you from church, something's gone wrong. And he was born in this tiny little town. And we talked, we sang about bustling Bethlehem. Well, bustling Bethlehem was probably only a couple of hundred people. It might have been bustling, but it was bustling with a small number. And in a far distant, though very troublesome province of the Roman Empire called Idumea. And in chapter 1, the most striking thing we see in Matthew chapter 1 is actually a genealogy. Now, if you've ever read chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, and you come to that, genuine, genuinely, people just sort of skip over it. They go, okay, let's jump to the end. We'll go right to the end because there's 42 generations listed. Nobody reads them all, do they? You know, Abraham, Jesus, marking the generations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, King David, and generation after generation till you get to the last three, which are the... The, the money generations, if you want, and they are Matthew chapter 1, verse 15, Mathan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's where we all jump. Now, what Matthew is doing here is not, he just doesn't put in a genealogy because he likes writing out phone books, right? That's not what he's done. What he's done is he's confirming Jesus' bloodline. He's showing us that Jesus is a Jew amongst Jews. He is as impeachably, unimpeachably a Jew as King David is. And Matthew then does something quite remarkable because the first people that he records as coming to find this king are Gentiles, are non-Jewish people, are people from outside of Israel, most likely the Persians. They are the ones who come looking for him. And did you hear what they said in verse 2 as, as Ros read? They came to worship him. They didn't just come to say hi or to drop off a few, you know, drop off a Christmas card or something, the very first Christmas card. No, no. They came to worship him. They were looking for Jesus 
to bow down. And so we can see that this baby, this king, though he's the king of the Jews, is actually much more than that. He's not just for Jewish people. And he's not just for Westerners. There's this sort of misconception that Christianity is a Western religion. It is not. It was born in the Middle East and the first people to come to him were from the Far East, were from Media and Persia and beyond. They were the Magi, the astrologers, the fortune tellers, if you want. You see, God is not just, he certainly is the God of Israel, but he's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole world. Everyone comes, even the Magi come to this one. And what they do is they're following a sign, we might call it the writing in the sky, so to speak, and they bring precious gifts of frankincense and myrrh. Now, most of us don't know what frankincense and myrrh are. We've never come across them. These are the, the, the raw materials for frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense is an oil that smells nice. Myrrh is an embalming ointment. It does this, it's a, it has a slightly different smell. But these are gifts, gifts that come from other lands. As Psalm 72 points forward and says, the, the kings of Tarshish, the kings from the east, will bring gifts to this king and bow down to the king of Israel. And the Magi are led. They're led by a star, his star, they call it. And there are a few ideas about what that could be, what natural occurrences. People have spent a lot of time to prove that there's no, no miracles in the Bible, of course, that you can't have miracles. Now, so there's, people have come up with all these natural occurrences it could be. Uh, it could have been, number one, a planetary conjunction. Now, I'm an astronomer. I love my telescopes. This is a, planet, a picture of a planetary conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter, two brightest planets in the sky. When they come together, and they were together in 7 BC, it's one of those weird things that Jesus was probably born seven years before Christ, but that's the way we count things, you know, it just is. Uh, and that sort of fits, it fits with what we know about Herod and when he lived and when he died. It's possible that it was Halley's Comet, and that would sort of give this big sort of almost pointer to where it was, going, where it was pointing someone, but that came through in 10 BC, it's probably a little bit too early to be real. Or perhaps, as has been believed over most of Christian history, it was a completely miraculous heavenly light. Could have been any of those things. The simple answer is, we don't know what it was. We have no idea. Whatever it was, whether it was natural or whether it was not natural, whatever it was, the timing was perfect because it led these people, these magi, to the king. These magi of faraway lands saw the signs and were drawn to the king of kings. But then we come across another man, a man called Herod. He was king of Israel at the time, Herod the Great, from 40 BC through to about 4 BC who was king because he was elected king. Now, that's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Imagine if you had elections for Charles. I suspect he probably wouldn't win the election, but, you know. But the even weirder thing was that he wasn't elected king by the Jews, he was elected king by the Romans. They made him king because his father, a man called Antipater, 
had looked after, had protected the Roman interests in Judea at the time and they had made him a puppet, what they called uh, prefect and then they appointed his son Herod king. And Herod was a great king. He was a great builder. He built the third temple of Jerusalem. This is a model of the third temple which was around at the time of Jesus. And he also built the great winter palace of Herodium, which is just south of Jerusalem. It's huge. It's a man-made mountain. That whole thing is built by human beings. And he was a great politician. He lasted 36 years as king and died a natural death. Now, that was rare enough. So often... The kings or the Caesars or whoever they were were killed by their children. Don't get any ideas, those of you who have parents, right? Don't get, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's what used to happen if you were a Caesar, right? If you're here with your mum or dad, don't look at them. Uh, he was a great killer. He had a bad reputation. He killed his wife, his first wife. He killed her brother. He killed her mother. And he killed their two sons, because he felt threatened by them. He felt they were going to take his power, as well as his heir and son, Archelaus. He was an immoral murderer. This one hears of the birth of Jesus and he fears the threat. That's what Matthew means when he says this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. It's not just, oh, I'm a little bit upset. He was terrified. He was scared because something that was happening was outside of his control. In the same way that he feared the threat of his sons usurping his throne, so he feared this baby. So what he did next was completely in character with what we know about him. First, he feigned interest and he tried to deceive the Magi there in verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. Yeah, right. But of course, the Magi found out that Herod really was a deceiver, and they returned. They didn't go back. They were told in a dream that this was not what was going to happen. So Herod, true to form does one of the most appalling things in the entire Bible. Just as Pharaoh had done to Israel in their captivity, so Herod ordered what is now called the slaughter of the innocents, where every two-year-old boy baby is killed. Why was he so scared? It was because of the promises that were going on. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2. When he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now, it was telling enough that this supposed king of Israel didn't even know the answer to his own question, where is the Messiah going to be born? But it also shows us clearly that he's not the one in the frame. He's not the one on view. He wasn't born in Bethlehem. He's not the Messiah. He's not going... But rather this king, this one who's coming now, who they, he's just been told, 
is born in a small town near Jerusalem, which is what Micah 5 told us, that you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. You see, the prophecy is that the ruler, the one who will take over Israel, will come from Bethlehem. And Herod was almost certainly in his winter palace at Herodium. He had a palace for the summer over at Caesar Maritima, but he had a, and he had a palace in Jerusalem that he hardly ever went to because he didn't feel safe there, but he usually lived in Herodium, especially through the winter. And Herodium's only five kilometres south of Bethlehem. So when you look out of the north gate of Herodium, Bethlehem is just there, five kilometres away, an hour's walk. So he feared for his... He felt that imminent threat. He felt the closeness of it all. He felt the danger and he feared for his throne and his life. So he did this appalling thing, this horrible murder of the boys. And almost certainly, without realising it, fulfilled then that other prophecy, the one that had been prophesied by Jeremiah 600 years before in verse 17. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This generation of little children killed. But that was not the fate of Jesus because God acted to preserve his Messiah. God wasn't going to let that happen. And he sent a dream. He sent a dream to Joseph. Now, Joseph isn't talked about very much in the Gospel accounts. In fact, he doesn't actually appear after Jesus goes to the temple when he's about age eight. He just disappears from the scene. He probably dies. But here, he plays a crucial role in saving God's son from the hand of Herod. That's chapter 2, verse 13. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, I don't quite know what to make of it, really. I'll give you an idea in a minute. But there's an interesting pattern here, almost a symmetry, if you want. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, the patriarch Joseph is taken to Egypt and interprets dreams, and he saves his family by taking them to Egypt. The Joseph in Matthew's story has a dream and takes his family to Egypt to save them. I think that's probably because what Matthew's trying to do is draw strong links between the prophecy that Matthew recounts for us from the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea, up here, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son. So God saved his son to Egypt so that he would call his son just like Israel had been called out of Egypt. Well, the family stayed there till Herod died. And when he died, they returned to live in Galilee, verse 21. So he got up, 
took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now Archelaus wasn't, was a second Archelaus. He was not, he was, he was to be feared. Um, one of the Bible historians wrote this. He was Herod's elder son by his Samaritan wife Malthais and he has the worst reputation of all the sons of Herod. So they returned to Galilee, well outside of Herod's Archelaus territory. But before we progress, I just want to point out the detail that Matthew goes into here. He mentions this man Archelaus by name, who we know from other historical records was Herod's son in Judea, straight after Herod the Great. And he indicated it was safer in Galilee because it wasn't in Archelaus's territory, it was in his, one of the other sons in Antipater's territory. And here we see that it's not in Archelaus's, it's just up out of Archelaus's reach, so he's not in his sphere of influence anymore. So when you examine the history, when you look at the details, the Bible gets it right over and over again. Time after time, the authors get the details right. But the point of all this is not to show that Matthew can get the details right, but the second part of verse 22, if you come with me there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Third time we have the fulfilment idea. God does this in order to fulfill his prophecies. See, the purpose is not to prove the accuracy of what's going on, but to show that the prophets would be fulfilled. That's what's driving the account. That this child, this child is coming in fulfilment of all the prophets who foretold that he would be despised and rejected. Being called a Nazarene was almost a swear word at the time, a term of derision. In John's Gospel, when Nathaniel hears about Jesus of Nazareth, he responds like this, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? On the way home in the car today, my wife and I, we talked about, is there a modern-day corollary? I could not think of one that would not be culturally inappropriate. Because this is a cultural slur. This is as bad as it gets. This is, call, this is like you know, calling people north of the border slow, only ten times worse, or whatever. This child is to be despised, threatened, and yet, as Matthew showed us, he is God with us. Emmanuel, chapter 1, verse 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you see, that's the other side of the meeting, the other aspect to it. Uh, not only are they meeting the king of the Jews, true enough, but they're meeting God, they're meeting Emmanuel, God amongst us, God taken on flesh and walking amongst us. 
And so the simple answer is that if you want to know God, if you want to see God, if you want to see the invisible God, what you do is you need to look at and to meet Jesus because he is Emmanuel, God come amongst us. Or as the Apostle John says, the word who became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And as extraordinary as that is, God amongst us, he's also something else. He is Jesus. Now, I've seen a few times over the last few months, names have meanings. They indicate something. And Jesus' name is Joshua. Joshua is in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua means saviour. So this one who is God with us is also saviour. As Matthew says, verse 21, chapter 1, she will give birth to a son and you would give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, that's unexpected. This little baby, born in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, in a small town outside of Jerusalem, will save his people from their sins. He's not going to save them from Rome. He's not going to save them from bad things happening. He's not going to save them from themselves. He's going to save them from their sins, from their inbuilt and natural rejection of God, which is where we all are as human beings. We all reject our ruler, God. And so we are all under the judgment of God. We all need saving. And Jesus comes as our saviour. But this rescue, this salvation from deserved punishment does not come just from Jesus being born but born so that he could become our representative, walk in our shoes, experience the human condition, drink deeply at the well of joy and happiness as well as pain and suffering. And so understand us, be in our shoes, represent us, in a sense be us. God has walked a mile in our shoes so he understands us. But he's more than that even. He's our substitute. He stands in our place. The Apostle Peter puts it like this, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous Christ, for the unrighteous everyone else, to bring you to God. Which is not saying that everyone is completely evil. That's not what it's saying at all. But it is saying, that everyone is out of relationship with God. Naturally, by nature, if you want. And that's what sin is. Not being in a right relationship with God. And Jesus deals with that. Not just by sweeping it under the table, pretending it doesn't happen, you know, it's all okay, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls, everything will be all right. No, not like that. But by suffering, by going to the cross dying in our place, taking the just judgment for our sins. He does that so that we might have eternal life, so that we might come to God. You see, meeting Jesus at his birth is really easy. Babies are cute. Even crying babies, when they're asleep, are cute. 
I've just got a fourth little grandchild. She's nine weeks old now. She, yeah, I know, she's so cute. And I would happily spend all my time with her, even changing her nappy, right? It's, it is, yeah. And nativity scenes, you see them everywhere. Why do you see them everywhere? Because they're a wonderful expression of family, aren't they? You know, mum and dad and the, the, the donkeys and the cows and the, you know, the comfortable little manger with all the, looking so cute. Christmas has come just such a family time, hasn't it? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not knocking it at all. It's a good thing. But Christmas, Christmas actually has a dark side. Because birth has a dark side. I remember very clearly when my daughter was born, my eldest, my daughter. And after we'd gone through the initial few minutes of elation and excitement and relief that everything was okay, I remember leaning over and cuddling my exhausted wife and saying to her, you do realise this means one day we'll have a teenager. Yes, now that's a joke, of course. Well, we did have a teenager. She was a wonderful teenager. But in reality, the reality is that every birth will result in a death. Every single one. In medicine, we say that the mortality rate, despite all our efforts, is still 100%. Life is a deadly disease, if you want. But the important thing here is that this one who is greeted king of the Jews in his birth is crucified king of the Jews in his death and crucified as saviour of the world. To truly meet Jesus is not just to encounter him as the Jewish baby king, though that's true, in the midst of the worship and the intrigue and the rescue and all of that, but to encounter him as saviour to encounter him as saviour of his people, saviour of the world, saviour of you and of me. And so that leaves us with the question, not just have you met God, but have you met Jesus? Well, yes, you have. If ever so briefly, not in me, of course, but as you've listened to the words of God being spoken from Matthew's Gospel, you've, you've been introduced to Jesus just a little bit. Or more so, if you've been to church before and you've heard the Bible taught and explained and read, then you have met him before. Or if you count yourself a follower of Jesus already, you might be a Christian, then remember, his birth was for a reason. His birth was for our life. As the carol says, half the herald angels, mild he lays his glory by, born that man may, no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. See, we've been given a second birth by this. Now, he says, live this second birth, live this new life, live this new start you've got. Commit to meeting Jesus. Continue to meeting Jesus in his word. Meeting him as your Lord and your Saviour. Meeting him as your King. But if you're here tonight and you haven't yet followed Jesus or you haven't yet made up your mind, then the opportunity is here. God is here 
speaking, not me, in his word. And you can know more. You can meet Jesus. Not just in the sanitised stories, the little cute stories of a baby with Jesus, donkeys and mangers, three kings who aren't kings. But in the nitty gritty of life, the life born in humble circumstances, fulfilling the expectations of thousands of years of prophecy who lived and taught and finally went to a grisly death on a cross. For you and for me to save us from our sins that is enormous freedom that is a great challenge and this is a great opportunity if you'd like to know more about that please come and speak to me or to mel who is leading the meeting or to lauren who led us in prayer We'd love to talk to you about it. Talk to a Christian friend who bought you. Fill in the QR code and ask, please help me. Please let me know what... Ask your questions because we'd love to help you meet Jesus and take him as your Lord and Saviour. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please open our eyes to your glory in your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our hearts to see him truly. Soften our hearts to follow him in love and truth as our crucified saviour, raised again to new life for us all. May we put our trust fully in him. In Jesus' name, amen. I think we're going to sing again, is that right?